For the last four weeks, we have had uh, an Olympic focus in our messages and uh, in our Sundays um, because of the parallels, really, between the Christian life, the Christian journey, and faith and, uh, and some of the things that we can learn. And so um, this morning, rather than having somebody up here read the scripture, I'm going to invite you all to stand. And we're going to read these verses that maybe this is your first Sunday here in four weeks. Maybe you've been here every Sunday, so they might be familiar verses. But they'll be up here on the screen, and uh, and we'll read them together in unison this morning. There we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given our lives in your struggle against sin. Hebrews 12, 1 and 4. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we were doing that scripture together, I was... Uh, flashback to soccer camp a week ago and every day part of the camp we have what we call coach's corner and it's a time of teaching and uh, there's always a a theme for the day and a scripture that goes with it and they bring kids up and they all have a part of the verse uh, written on the on the sheet of paper and uh, they hold it up and then we learn it and then they take two of them out and they hold it so you kind of memorize the verse by repeating it a few times And since we're out on the field, they always like to encourage the kids and say, let's make sure all the people over at the playground hear us. And so I was tempted to to do that this morning and see how how loud we could uh, say that verse this morning. But I didn't, thankfully. Um, Most of you know that I had the privilege of taking a sabbatical uh, just this past May, June, and July. And then I just returned to my role here at TCC as the associate pastor at the beginning of this month. Now, I've only been back three weeks and two Sundays. That first week was just kind of getting reconnected and preparing for soccer camp. And the second was soccer camp. And that's like all out every day um, uh, out uh, with kids and with leaders. It's a a great week. And uh, lives, we believe, are forever and eternally changed and seeds are planted during that week and it makes it all worthwhile. And so then this was the third week, and, uh, and I had to catch up for everything that I sort of missed last week already, and then prepare uh, for, this, for this sermon. I don't know if I said this the first Sunday I was back, but I want to just say it again because I think it's important to say, I just need you to know how much I missed being here at TCC. Um, you know, one of the challenges that you face in pastoral ministry Because you're committed to a church, you never really have an opportunity to see what God is doing at other churches. Unless maybe you have a sabbatical or some churches even encourage their pastors a couple times a year to go and visit other churches. I attended five other churches during that time. 
And, uh, and while obviously God is doing some great things at all of those churches, and um, they're good churches, they weren't like TCC. And maybe that was because obviously my own personal connection and love and affection for this church. And they say that, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I want to say that that certainly was true. And so it's so good to be back. Now, since being back, I've already been asked numerous times, how was it? And what did you do? And with all due respect and kind consideration to those who've already asked me that question, um, I need you to know that it's very hard to describe the experience. The benefits of a sabbatical aren't always tangible. You don't return from one having completed a project or have something to show for your time away. And every sabbatical is different, and it can be tailored to where you're at at that specific time. I suspect that my next sabbatical in about five years uh, will look very different. But what I want to do this morning is just introduce the message by sharing some highlights. And the scripture that we read this morning, and we're going to consider it in a little more detail, just provides a good opportunity to do this. So just a quick overview of my sabbatical first, so that you can stop asking me the question already, okay? So the month of May, and, and, and I planned this in advance, and I had a focus uh, for each month with kind of an intended outcome. And so my focus in May was just rest and decompression. I knew going into it that I needed a rest. A sabbatical is quite different from a vacation, uh, perhaps mostly due to its length, right? A vacation is, is a pause, and then you're kind of right back at it. And that's important, but, but, you're, but they're often over before you know it. A sabbatical like the Sabbath, is intended to be a time of rest. And I want to just say as a side note, God has woven into the fabric of the routine of our week a sabbatical for every one of us. That's why we refer to Sunday as a Sabbath. And we've probably have lost some of that, but if anything that I've taken away, even from the extended time away, is to realize how important the Sabbath is. And I... Somewhere, I think, in this next six months to a year, we're going we're gonna to do a series on what does it mean to experience Sabbath rest? Because I think it's so important, and it's something that is necessary in our fast-paced, hectic culture, and we need to spend more time in, of doing that. But I bet we've all had this experience before. You get in your car, and you leave for a trip to the mountains, and you head south towards Calgary, and that, or that's where you're going to go. You, you leave your home, you drive probably slowly down your quiet residential street, You turn out onto a little more significant route. Maybe you pick up a little speed. Then you turn onto a collector route. Think, you know, Twilliger Drive or something like that. And now you can do at least 70. And then you merge onto the Anthony Hende and you try to ease up to 100 kilometers per hour. Except for the fact that there's some person in front of you that thinks that the Hende is like the white mud and they're going to do 80 and you practically get killed by the cars coming up doing 100 or faster behind you. I'm not the only one that's had that experience, right? But you travel with the flow, you kind of monitor the speed, especially if you live in the southwest, you know that you're going to approach that overpass over White Mud Creek and you know what? They sit with photo radar behind there, so you do a quick glance, and you're like, oh, 103, I'm okay, and, uh, and you just keep going along. And then you turn south onto the QE2, and you quickly assume that everyone is either late for work or they're about to miss a flight, and you start to drive faster. 
and the speed limit increases to 110. You're doing 120. And as you continue south, you start to pay less attention to your speedometer, and you just start to keep pace with the cars around you. The problem is, just like in our culture, we start to go fast and faster. And you might even sustain that for a while. Until in a moment of rationality, you you look down and you realize that you're going 140 kilometers an hour. And so you ease off the gas a little bit. You're laughing. Some of you are kind of snickering, like you've never done that before. This is only my experience, and you have a pastor that speeds. Sorry to break it to you, but uh, yes, that's true. But you ease off the gas pedal, and you start to slow down a little bit. And when you get back to the posted speed limit of 110, you start to feel like that's kind of slow, actually. And and if you've ever had to stop on the side of the QE2, you know just how fast everyone else is actually going when you're standing there fearing for your life. Well, that's a little bit what I felt like in May. I didn't realize how fast I was going until I slowed down. And so May was just a time to slow down and have some rest. We had some significant life events in, our, in May. Our daughter, Anna, she plays volleyball, and they had a provincial tournament and then nationals in Calgary. And, and it was so good to be able to go there and just be there without thinking about another email or a meeting or somebody that I needed to connect with, but just to be present. And then our son, Lucas, he graduated from high school this year. And Tina's dad and, his, and her sister came for, came for that occasion. <clears throat> and it really was great just again, to be fully present in uh, those major life events of my kids. But the third, during the third week of May, I spent it at a pastor's retreat at Camp Caroline. And besides great content that specifically addressed the life and faith areas that I was planning to focus on during my sabbatical, it was there that I realized just how much I needed some rest. The first two weeks, I was still kind of doing things here that I had to tie up loose ends, and I was doing things at home, and there was still a lot of activity, but it wasn't until I got there and sat under some good teaching. <clears throat> and then, you know, about 3.30, 4 o'clock, the afternoon session would wrap up, and we had some free time. And almost every day that week, I just went back to my room, and I had a great nap. And just realize that, like, that doesn't happen. Why does that happen? Because it was finally a chance just to slow down and, uh, and slow down uh, gradually. And so that's what I meant by the purpose was just kind of decompressing. So then we moved into June. And my focus for June was kind of what I called renewal and decluttering. And, and, and you have to understand me. I'm an alliteration guy. You've heard me speak maybe enough times to know that there's something kind of linear about that. And so I, yes, you're going to see three R words and three D words all the way along. Um, But um, in June, thanks to a family here from TCC who who graciously provided me with the key to their townhouse in Cadmore, I was able to spend most of the month there and part of July as well. I was actually planning to spend 40 days there. That was kind of my goal because of the significance of that time of preparation for many of the people in the Bible. And I fell just short of, uh, of that, that time there. But this was a time of extended silence and solitude. I, I knew that I needed that. For those of you who know me well, you would appreciate maybe just how uncommon that is for me. I, I'm an extrovert. I like people. I like to be with people. And to suddenly stop... And then just do everything alone. It was kind of a unique and weird experience at the same time. 
And for the first two weeks, I didn't turn on the TV. I, I didn't listen to any music. It was just always silent. It was always quiet in this home. And my longing and prayer was that just as May answered my need for rest, that June would be a time to have my heart and soul renewed. And so I read about the soul, about caring for your soul, about our private worlds. I read about brokenness and surrender and holiness. And when I wasn't reading, I was walking. I walked between an hour and two hours almost every day. And it wasn't just kind of a leisurely stroll. It was for exercise. I needed to burn calories. I was on a mission. And so I walked an average probably of six or seven kilometers every day, some days doing as many as 14 kilometers on some days. And as I walked, all I did was just kind of reflected on my reading and prayed. And I thought a lot, lot about the path that I was on. I mean, quite literally, actually, because I needed to know where I was going. But one, because, because when you're out in the mountains and you find a trail, you kind of have to know a little bit where it's going before you really commit to it because you might not be back for a few days if you take a few wrong turns. So you really kind of have to be, pay attention because there are no shortcuts. And I just have to say that, you know, God was so good during that time, and he just kind of revealed things a little bit at a time, some major things, some minor things, but it was just a tender and gracious work in, in his life, in my life, kind of taking some of the junk away in my life. And so June was everything I prayed it would be and more. July was going to be the focus on kind of revisioning. And, and, and I didn't um, have a D word, actually, when I set out. And it kind of bugged me. But I thought, you know what, God, I, I trust you. You're going to bring it to me. And it was just, just this word, discipleship. And I'll say more about that in later. And it wasn't just about revisioning. But I sensed that there was a bit of a reigniting of the passion for discipleship on my own part. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But as I was... Um, Moving towards uh, this time, God just simply, through my reading and through my praying, just reminded me again of something as simple as the ultimate purpose in my life, is to first and foremost be a disciple of Jesus, who's in a position to help other disciples follow Jesus. That was it. It wasn't revolutionary. It wasn't great. It was just kind of taking me back to the core of what it means really to be a pastor, to be a shepherd, and to say, hey, we want to go on this journey together. Uh, now, you may know that I'm probably kind of the, like the detail guy at TCC. And, and for three months, the setup team was extremely grateful that I wasn't around, you know, to move that chair or that table three inches to the right because it wasn't quite in the right place that I intended it to be. And, and being away from that, I realize just how insignificant that is and, I, and how insignificant I am and that, that, that I can get over my own self-importance very quickly if, if I'm not needing to be in that situation all the time. But I also am, am a bit of the connecting guy, connecting people to others, connecting people to groups, connecting people to places to serve. They're all good things, except, of course, the tables and chairs because that really doesn't matter that much. Because most of you would not know whether that chair or that table is in the right place or not. But because of that, I, I honestly, when I step back, I think that I had lost my way a little. I, you know, you, you get into it and you keep kind of doing ministry over and over, week after week. And, and I couldn't see the forest for the trees. And, and stepping back just helped me to realize that as a pastor... My role is more than just making sure that as a church we operate, you know, effectively and efficiently. I have a responsibility to help each of us 
know and love and become more like Jesus. And not for our sake, but for the sake of others who you too have an opportunity to influence to this end. And I know that I can't take you where I'm not myself. And so what did I do? And how was it? I can't think of a better outcome than God igniting my passion for being the disciple of Jesus who makes other disciples. And as I launch into this next chapter of ministry, I sense one of the things that God's calling me to do is just to invest more of my time in leaders who will influence others to become more like Jesus as well. And that's just going to unfold over, over this next season, I'm sure. Now that, I know, is a rather lengthy introduction to my message this morning, but I hope it answers some of the questions that you might have had about, well, what, where were you and what did you do and how was it and, and, and what, you know, what did you come back with? I think I came back with a renewed soul and, and a, a renewed passion. And for that, I'm extremely grateful and thankful to our leadership and our staff and you, the congregation, for just investing in me and allowing me that time uh, to do that. But here's the perfect segue, I think, to the message this morning, is that God used the sabbatical ultimately to remind me, and I hope now you as well, to simply run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That's it, friends. Because that is the goal of the Christian life. That is the real goal that we're talking about. That's real faith, and it means being real. It means admitting that we're not there yet. In fact, in our lifetime here on earth, we never will be. We all have struggles in life. We're going to trip and fall and stumble. But we do rise because God extends his loving grace to us and says, Stand up, my child. Come. We've got more of this journey to continue on. And so, as Lynn reminded us this morning, really, it's all about Jesus. And these verses, opening verses, really remind us of that truth. Because in this fourth and final message of this series, it really was just intended to, to kind of coincide with the buzz of the Olympic Games in, in Rio. We heard so much about the road to Rio. But the road to real was more than just a clever play on words. Our goal was not to become better Olympians or to motivate you to take up race walking, you know, as exciting and exhilarating as that that may be. Um, Did anybody watch that? (laughs) Hear the controversy? Sorry. My apologies to all you race walkers, or some of of you probably have like a, 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 you know, an extended cousin that is a race walker, and you're going to like write me a letter about all of the... I know it's an Olympic sport, and anyways, I digress, and now I've got to bail myself out and find the place that I was, was at. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't that, but this series was just to challenge us to consider something far more important. What ultimately is the goal of your life? Have you thought about that? Right? Is it... Is it you know, we could, we could ramble on about what the goal might be. I don't know if it's to get a bigger house, to get an education, to have lots of kids, or, or whatever it might, might be. And I don't want to, you know, hammer too hard on that. 
But I do want to say that these verses are a great reminder to us that none of that really matters. And what matters most is who we are becoming in Christ. And so these opening four verses in Hebrews 12 have been our focus these past four weeks. Pastor Ken started our study study off by considering the real spectators. And the phrase, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Not, Not so much so that these spectators gather and look at us running the race, but that we might actually look to them and their example for encouragement. And then Dr. Sid Page looked at the real hindrances, or the phrase, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, there are many things, especially sin, that can trip us up, making running the race especially challenging. And because it's challenging, because it's hard, we need perseverance or real endurance, as we discovered last week. And this theme of endurance runs really throughout all of these verses, and we'll see why in a moment. But the writer of Hebrews uses this image of running a race to help us understand that the journey of faith that the Christian life is. It's not a competitive race. We're not trying to be better than someone else. Nor is it a sprint. It is really an ultra marathon. And as we run this race, we look to the great witnesses of faith described in chapter 11 for encouragement to finish well. We get rid of all of the things that restrict us. We come to appreciate that we are in it for the long haul. And so we require endurance and that our ultimate goal is Jesus. Because he simply is the object and the model of our faith. And so this morning, we're just going to look at a couple of continuing phrases in, in, in the end of, chap- of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. And the first is just fixing our eyes on Jesus. I mean, what does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus is maybe the, we could say, the ultimate witness or example of faith and perseverance. Pastor Ken did a masterful job last Sunday of explaining that and had us consider him who endured. What Jesus went through in his life, his joy in obedience, ultimately ultimately leading up to his death, and eventually being exalted and is now seated at the right hand of God on the throne. Runners in a race, they may see the path stretched out before them, but when they fix their eyes on Jesus, they are looking to a king or a leader as a model to follow with the risk of kind of mixing metaphors here, you know, in the sprints, and especially like 100 meter, what do they say? Never turn to the look beside you. Keep your eyes, what, on the tape. You got to keep your eyes focused. So that's where that's at. But even in an ultra marathon, in a long distance race, you need to keep your eyes on the pathway, but more so on the example that has gone before us. And so as we run a race, we might see this path stretch out before us. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are looking to a king or to a leader as a model to follow. And Jesus has run the path before us. us. He has already set an example. And now the real goal of the Christian faith is simply to become a new person in Christ. A person who thinks and acts and becomes like Jesus. This is the goal of someone who has said yes to Jesus, 
who has accepted his invitation to follow. We use the word discipleship to describe this journey. And when we talk about discipleship, it doesn't just mean head knowledge, so like, like that we're thinking like Jesus, but that our heart and our soul and our very characters are transformed in this process. And that's why sometimes you'll hear people describe discipleship and they'll describe this transformation that's taking place as spiritual formation. But whatever we might call it, we should know that this is absolutely an intentional process where God does his part and we do ours. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13, he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So continue to work it out, for it is God who works in you. And so Jerry Bridges, who writes about discipleship a lot and various subjects around the Christian life, he calls this dependent discipline in that we're dependent on, on God. We need God to do his work in our life. We cannot muster up enough courage or energy or whatever to say, I'm going to change. But it is the Holy Spirit working within us, the power of God in us, changing us from the inside out. But we don't just passively sit back and wait for this to happen. It requires discipline on our part. And as that verse says, it's our responsibility to work out our salvation. And so, you know, the Christian life isn't easy. Becoming like Christ is not easy. It's not just a passive thing where we can sit on our couches and, 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 and see this transformation take place. Unless, of course, we're reading good books and all that. So don't stretch that analogy too far. But too often... I think as Christians, we think that this should be easy or that this transformation should just happen. And then sometimes we get discouraged. And like this verse says elsewhere, that we just grow weary and discouraged. You see, our natural tendency, I think, in the faith journey is just to drift. It's to get off course very easily. Or like the hymn writer puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And none of us really think about, oh, we're going to leave our relationship with God and we're going to go do something else. And we're gonna... but, but it just kind of becomes less of a priority for us instead of it being the priority. And so the race that we run is not an easy one. It's not a casual jog. We might even say that it's uphill, <laughs> pretty much all the way. And it can be tough slugging. And that's why we need dogged determination, as one writer put it that I read this week. I love that. Just a dogged tenacity to say, God, I want you to do the work in my life that I cannot do myself, but what do I need to do because I'm willing to do it? And that's why throughout these verses it talks about endurance and about not getting weak and discouraged and why running the race takes discipline. If we want to draw an analogy here this morning, just think about what it takes to be an Olympian, yet alone an Olympic medalist, right? It takes years of just grinding it out, practice after practice, hardcore training, overcoming injuries, every extreme discipline in every area of our lives. 
let's just watch this video real quick to see what it takes. You have to ask yourself, is your prime ahead of you or behind you? Will your worst days remind you that your best are still to come? Is the drum in your chest loud enough to keep your challengers up at night? Do you have what it takes when the fight goes into extra rounds? Will the surplus of pounds you lifted be enough to prepare you for the more that is required when what comes next finally arrives? Are you committed to the grace it takes to turn your falls into dives, to cut through the surface of the water? Will you have what it takes when there's no spotter to save you and no net to catch you? When your mind asks for more, will your body match you? And there are times in the Christian journey that I ask myself, do I have what it takes? And do you? Because fixing our eyes on Jesus, having that singular purpose and focus and goal in our lives is hard work. It requires discipline. And we've got to change a lot of things about the way we think and act and the things that, you know, part of who we are. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus for two reasons. Because he is the pioneer of faith. Now, I don't want to stretch the athletic imagery of a race too far, but we might see this as the starting line. Some of the translations that you uh, may be reading of this verse from use the word author. So the author and perfecter of our faith. And it has the idea of a champion. And so we read from the, the New Living Translation this morning, it used that word. It's really a leader, a forerunner, an initiator. And many of these fit the image of a race. But it's in this context, as the writer goes on to talk about Jesus' death on the cross, it becomes clear as to why pioneer is fitting. It's the word actually used in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 10, when the writer says of Jesus, the pioneer of their salvation. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, there would be no need to believe in him. But when he did, he initiated or he pioneered the faith journey. And friends, this little phrase is critical. It tells us that Jesus' death started salvation. And that just is the gospel. It's the good news. It, it solves the problem of sin. It, it offers forgiveness for sin. And Jesus died and takes away our sin when we repent and we believe in him, when we accept him as our savior. And we know that we will go to heaven when we die. But this is only the start where it's initiated, and the faith journey doesn't end there. Because Jesus is not just the pioneer of faith, he is the perfecter of faith. And so not only did he initiate the journey of faith for us, he completed it, or he perfected it for us. If being the pioneer of faith is the starting line, then being the perfecter of faith is the finish line. And again, because of Jesus' death on the cross, not only did he pioneer this faith journey, he perfected it as well. And so also in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, where he writes, For by one sacrifice, listen to this, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
That, is, that, that should be the memory verse for today. I should get some kids up here with sheets of paper, and that's the verse we should, for by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made perfect. Jesus' death on the cross, that one sacrifice, he accomplished what was needed for us to be able to draw near to God. Do you see this? He both made perfect and continues this work. This is the work of transformation. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God started us on the journey of faith. He made us perfect and he continues this good work and will finish it or complete it. And so we are both changed And we are in the process of changing. And theologians call this change sanctification. Sanctification is just the ongoing process of change that begins the moment a person is saved and continues until that person's last breath. So let me just give you a quick overview of some of the markers on this journey of faith. Um, Because I think it would help us just to kind of picture that There's a start and a finish, but maybe there are some points in between. And um, there may be more markers than this. This is not an exhaustive list. And you may even disagree with some of these, but here's some things that came to me as I was thinking about this. The start ultimately is this. It's a commitment to Jesus. Okay? I've already mentioned this, but this is where we say yes to Jesus. We accept by faith his gift of grace. Like the Apostle Paul so clearly writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But if this first marker is conversion or salvation, then the rest of the markers that I'm going to share are really this journey of discipleship. And I want us to be very careful here and understand this. You cannot have one without the other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Bill Hull, who has written many books on the subject of discipleship, says, we evangelicals accept and even encourage a two-level Christian experience in which serious Christians pursue and practice discipleship while grace and forgiveness are for everyone else. And that's simply not true. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And my suspicion is that too many Christians have made him Savior but have not understood the lordship of Christ in their lives. As we've discovered this morning, you can't have one without the other. But my fear is that churches today are filled with people who at some point thought that they could make him their savior. And they maybe said a prayer or walked an aisle or raised a hand or whatever they did. But they're stuck there. Sure, they probably go to church. They They might even attend Bible studies. They they might serve somewhere. But then when you talk about discipleship or spiritual transformation, 
their eyes sort of glaze over a little bit because like that quote that I read from Bill Hull, uh, they just think that discipleship is for the really serious Christian. If you want to be a radical, go ahead and be a radical. Guess what, friends? God calls all of us to be radicals. We can't say we follow Jesus and then have our character largely remain the same. If we today are the same self-absorbed person that we were if we came to Christ 10 years ago or 15 years ago, then we have missed part of what God is doing and intends to do in our lives. Because when we truly follow Jesus, everything changes. Our values, our relationships, our priorities, the very day-to-day life choices that we make change as we start to live out our faith. And so it's not a stretch to say that Jesus changes everything because he becomes our goal. And day by day, we're transformed to think and act and be more like Jesus. And I, you, you know what a basic sign is that says that you're ready to make Jesus Savior and Lord? And some of you are going to hate me for this. It's baptism. Because it, that, that's when you come before people publicly and just say, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. He's asked me to be baptized, so I'm going to be baptized. That's it. You're just declaring to everybody, guess what, dude? I'm under new management. Things have changed around here and in my heart. So think about that. We can talk more about that if you like. I'm going to run through a couple of these markers really quick now because this isn't necessarily what I want to focus on even this morning. But the second is, I think there's a marker or a stop in our lives where we have a holy discomfort. Because I think there becomes a point in this journey where we do start to feel a little dissatisfied. And maybe you come and you go, you know what? Is this all there really is to the Christian life? And you start to sense the Holy Spirit stirring within your heart a growing hunger for a deeper life with God. You want to see him actively working in, our, in your life. And you discover that you don't just want to pretend to be different. You want to be real. You want to become the person that God made you to be. And so then we come to brokenness where we acknowledge our sin and we're truly contrite and we're broken because now we realize the true price that Christ had to pay on our behalf and the price that it's going to cost us to become more like Jesus. And I think it's at this point where we get scared sometimes and we just go, you know what, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And so because it's hard, I'm just going to go back to my kind of normal, happy Christian life. But like a wild horse, we are broken and we realize how desperately we need God for everything and we submit to him. And that's the next marker is just surrender. We totally give God full control of our lives. And we come, become completely dependent on God. And we truly pray, not my will, God, but yours be done. In my life, in the life of my kids, the life of our family, your will be done. Holiness, where we discover and we come to a place where we realize that God's will actually is for our children to be holy. 
It's not that we become sinless. But over the course of our journey, we should sin less. And that takes us back to Sid's message. We're going to say, you know, we've got to throw off that stuff. And we know that there is sin that can trip us up. And we just say, you know what? Holiness. And I have to tell you, the book that I read on holiness during my sabbatical was probably the one that really challenged and turned my world a little upside down. Because I started to think a lot about the things that I do. Holiness simply means being set apart for God's purposes. And if we're set apart onto God, our lives should be different. And you know what the sad reality, friends, is? That of all the surveys taken, comparing those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and those who do not, on a number of beliefs and behaviors, there's not a huge difference. And it shouldn't be that way. We come to a love of God. Not just saying words, but just a passionate pursuit of a deep, deep relationship where we fill our minds and our heart with his truth. We develop a conversational, interactive relationship with Jesus. Because now it's not just a religious activity that we attend. This is becoming now the core of who we are as a person. And then lastly, just a love of others. Where we have this profound, intentional, generous love for people. I want you just, when you look at this list, I don't want you to get overwhelmed or anything like that, but I want you to notice that these aren't events or activities or things that you attend. They're attitudes, they're priorities, they're big picture priorities in our journey of faith. Now, these things may drive specific um, activities, but it answers the why question. Why would I worship? Because of my love for God. Why would I read my Bible? Because of my love for God. Why would I serve? because I love others. It becomes the why we do these things. Now let me just wrap up by saying this. I told you earlier about all the walking that I did in Canmore. And I estimate that I probably was a little over 200 kilometers in about 30 days. And when I started, I was given this little touristy map of, of Canmore. And, um, and I had this map, and, I, and the trails are marked on here. Now you, you have no hope of seeing that whatsoever, but I just want you to know I've got the map, okay? And what I did is every time I, I walked a path, I started to highlight it. And, and from the place that I was staying at, I could go on to and in diff, multiple different directions and ultimately, hopefully, find my way back eventually. But I used this map to kind of map out where I was going. And as I'm on this path in Canmore, they have, this, they have all these signs everywhere about all these different trails. And so I would take a picture of the map so that I would have it in case I needed to reference it in the future. But you've probably seen maps, whether it's in Canmore or elsewhere, where you come to a map and you look for what, first and foremost? You are here, right? You, you locate yourself in the journey. And once you've discovered, okay, well, that's where I am, and I want to be there this is the path that I have to take to get there. And you map it out, and you know where you are. And I want to suggest to you this morning, when you think back to that list of kind of markers along the way, maybe you hear God whispering, saying, you are here. Maybe it's you've never fully committed your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never fully surrendered your life to Christ.
Maybe you've never understood true brokenness. You hear that phrase, you're like, I'm not even sure what that means. I've got a great book for you to read. Okay? But that's where we define our reality, where we just look at the map and we go, oh, that's where I am. But this is where I want to be. And so I need to go in that direction. And so wherever you are, it's okay. Because that's part of the process. Just start there and go from there. The other thing that I learned that I think is a great metaphor for the Christian life is that we experience the journey so that we can show others the way. I started with this very basic map. I soon discovered that Google Maps also knows where these paths are, which when you're in the middle of the wilderness is very helpful to pull out your phone and go, oh, I'm on that trail. And if I turn that way, the arrow points in the wrong direction. And in fact, it saved me at one point from what could have been um, a very dangerous situation when I went, this doesn't seem right anymore, when it was very, very steep and I didn't see many more footprints ahead of me. And so I pulled out my phone and I was like about 300 meters off the trail that I should have been on and I backtracked and I went. And I did this over and over and over to the point that I didn't need the map, I didn't need the pictures on my phone, I didn't need Google Maps because I had been there before. I knew where I was going. And when Tina came, I said, well, how far do you want to walk? Six kilometers, eight kilometers, 10 kilometers? Tell me and we'll go. And that, and even one time, we were on this walk and I saw some tourists, right? And they got their map and they don't know which way is up or down. So I know they're confused or they're lost. I mean, they're on the trail, which is at least a good thing. And so I just stopped and said, can I help you? And they're like, yeah, we're looking to go up to Grassy Lakes. Anybody been to Grassy Lakes in Canmore? Beautiful hike. And I said, well, you're going to have to go here. And there's a bridge that was closed. And so I was telling them how they had to get around to going there. I felt so proud of myself. I was suddenly like the path expert in, in Canmore. But it happened because I had stepped out on the journey. Friends, we're all fellow sojourners. And those of you who have walked the road have a responsibility to share that experience and help others walk the path with you. And it's not a short journey. You don't need to think that I'm going to start walking, so I'm going to head to Calgary this afternoon because that can be overwhelming. And as Eugene Peterson put it so well, discipleship in an instant society is a long obedience in the same direction. May that be the desire of our hearts as well. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, when I look out at this crowd of people, the people that are affectionately our TCC family, and some may be visiting here, and maybe they're here because they're trying to find their way in this journey of faith, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would put our arms around one another, especially when we stumble and fall, and we would encourage one another to get up. It's going to be okay. And that the strength of Jesus may empower us and give us all that we need for the journey. And so we encourage one another. And so, Lord, wherever we may be this morning, I pray that you would plant in each of our hearts, in each of our souls, a you-are-here marker and that we would locate ourselves on this journey and that we would have the courage and we would look to you for your grace to move in the direction that we need to go. Help us 
to become more like your son, Jesus, in all that we think, all that we do, and all of who we are. In Jesus' name we pray.